Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. It's early July 1900, and we're into the phase of this conflict that is characterized by small Boer forces roaming the felt, hiding out, and then striking weak points in the British line. And in a country the size of South Africa, many weak points are to be found. The Transvaal government had relocated to the eastern town of Machadadorp, which overlooks the escarpment down to the coast, what is known as the low felt of the country. It's beautiful, but also treacherous. The canyons and gorges are heavily wooded and steep. An entire army could hide out in these thick, overgrown and deep valleys, and they did. Long rows of railway carriages constituted the new headquarters of the Transvaal government and its entourage of civil servants who had come from Pretoria. Boer commando Denise Reitz and his brothers had made their way to Machadadorp after the Battle of Diamond Hill, or Donkerhoek as it's also known. They had ridden east for three days before finally finding a berth on a cargo train in Middleburg, but had to leave their horses behind. So they reached Machadadorp early in the morning and found their father in one of the carriages. He was the Transvaal secretary, E.W. Reitz, who worked alongside Oom Paul Kruger, the president. One of Denise's brothers, Arendt, was in a Russian field hospital in Waterfall Onda, which means under waterfall, and uh, that was in the lower slopes of the escarpment. Reitz Sr. welcomed his sons, then told them to seek comfort from the fact that the war was not over. He said, look at George Washington. He too had fought for a seemingly lost cause, but triumphed in the end. It was midwinter, and Machadadorp was extremely cold at night. At least, Denise was comforted to know that his wounded brother was in the warmer climbs, 20 kilometers down the slopes to the east. The healthy Reitz brothers then returned to the high plains, heading west back to Middleburg, where they collected their horses and joined a contingent of German volunteers, about 60 strong, led by an Austrian called Baron von Goldeck. This small unit was on reconnaissance for General Louis Boerter, who, as we heard last week, had gathered a force of 5,000 together to continue the war against the British in the east of South Africa. The important fact to note here was that these 5,000 were what Boerter called good fighting men, unlike a large number of burghers who had been half-heartedly defending their country against the British at times. But these good fighting men were not alone. In the West, the Orange Free State like-minded Boer generals were at work. One was Christian de Vett, who had been busy, as we've heard. On the 8th of July 1900, British Commander Lieutenant General Sir Archibald Hunter's 2,000-strong column plodded into Bethlehem, a small town in the east of the Orange River Colony, as it was now called, close to the Basutoland frontier, or modern-day Lesotho. Hunter was moving with a few hundred Remington's Tigers, the English-speaking colonial fighters, as well as the Black Watch, the Seaforth Unit, and the Highland Light Infantry. They were veterans now, as were the Highland Yeomanry and the Lovat Scouts. As they approached Bethlehem, named after the birthplace of Jesus, their prayers were answered. It had taken weeks of marching through undulating felt, and the descriptions are very much like the Germans and French description of marching towards Moscow through the steppes. Week after week of unrelenting flatland, dusty, which eventually played on the soldiers' minds. Finally, this British unit spotted mountains. However, they would soon learn that the more beautiful the scenery, the more likely they were going to be in a fight. 
The mountains that faced Hunter's force were purple, some were round and Scottish-looking, and like the Scots variety, they had been formed by ancient glaciers. Others were craggy and sharp-angled, and the main ranges were alien with names like Witterbergen and Rödebergen, or White Mountains and Red Mountains. They appeared gaunt and bony, malevolent and streaked with snow. In South Africa, the angled winter sun strikes the north sides of the mountains. The south sides are always colder, directly opposite to what happens in the northern hemisphere. There were black ravines darkened by felt fires that are often set off in winter as the grass is brown and dry, and many of the local people burn these grasses to create green pastures when the rains fall later, thus creating a sort of fertilizer. And nearby, in the Brandweiter River, lay Christian de Vett. A young officer of the Remington Tigers was heard to say, We always serve out extra ammunition when we come to a pretty bit of scenery. Lord Roberts had given Lieutenant General Hunter a simple instruction. Entice de Vett out of his lair and then force him to fight and surrender. The method was to systematically corner his Boer force, which now had risen to around 5,000 men inside the Brandwater Basin, confront him and engage in a final battle. What is ironic is that Roberts and Hunter were using the same technique that General Louis Boerter had used against the British east of Pretoria, but in reverse. De Wett and his men would be trapped inside a natural amphitheater with the Brandwater ridges, the Witteberger and the Rodeberger forming three sides. And the point of no further was the Caledon River on the Basutaland border, which is too violent in summer to ford at most points, but in winter horses are able to cross. Wagons, however, cannot. The Basuta leader, Jonathan, had decided to cast his lot in with the British. We heard earlier in this series how he weighed up before the war whether he should decide with the Boers or the British. Eventually, he decided the empire was far too powerful to resist and went with the British. That meant the Boers would be attacked should they try and cross the Caledon River and enter Basutaland or modern-day Lesotho. The Basutu had already driven off both Boers and British over the preceding century and were highly skilled in mountain warfare. De Wett did not want to fight a war on two fronts. In this mountainous country, it's obviously very difficult to traverse in winter with deep snowfalls and bitterly cold temperatures and no food. But the Boers could have used it as a hideout. For example, the Drakensberg Mountains further east are an ideal area for an army to disappear into, except it was owned and held by the Basutu. Lieutenant General Hunter had a logistic and strategic imperative. The army under his command needed to approach this amphitheatre in step, as it were, in order to create no gaps for De Wett to exploit. Hunter had been besieged in Ladysmith earlier in the war with General White, who, as we know, was almost useless and had been a real disappointment. Hunter, on the other hand, was not. He was one of the most able generals Lord Roberts had and was quite capable of throwing a dragnet around De Wett. He had galloped across the all-important Vaal River earlier and had helped relieve Mafeking. Further, he had a large force at the beginning of this march, including Lieutenant General Leslie's 8th and Colonial Divisions and four other infantry brigades, which comprised MacDonald's Highland Brigade, Major General Clement's 12th Brigade, Major General Paget's 20th and Bruce Hamilton's 21st. He also commanded two mounted brigades, Broadwood's 2nd Cavalry and Ridley's Mounted Infantry. 
But he was forced to leave some of these brigades or parts of them to protect the long convoy line from attack, which had caused him to now reconsider his overall strategy. While the British were drawing toward Bethlehem, Boer General Christian de Wet had made a few momentous decisions of his own. Free State President Steyn's lager had moved from the east of the town of Heilbronn and then on to Bethlehem before Hunter's arrival. Steyn wanted de Wet to take overall command of the Free State Commandos, but the incumbent General Martinus Prinsloo was not happy with this. So Christian de Wet suggested a vote. In de Wet's wonderfully written book, Three Years' War, he says in a typically understated manner, The voting was by ballot, and the result was that there were two votes for General Martinus Prinsloo, one for General Piet de Wet, and 27 for myself. Christian de Wet wired Stein and told him the news, and the president indicated he'd abide by the decision. The wily general then continues, I was satisfied now that I knew exactly where I stood. General Rue now joined de Wet as Bethlehem fell to Hunter's force. The Boers were running into trouble, and worse, they were moving with a large wagon force. Little known to de Wet at the time, he writes, During the last few weeks, wagons had been accumulating around me without attracting my attention. The reason that the burghers were so anxious to bring their wagons with them was to be found in the fact that the English, when they arrived at one of our farms, always took the wagons and oxen. While de Wet was sympathetic, he also knew that it could be suicidal if they needed to break out of a trap. He was angry that his own men had been conniving against him, but he was virtually powerless to prevent them bringing their own wagons. And here, once more, the strangely democratic principle of the Boer military practice can be observed. De Wet refused to order his men to leave their wagons behind, probably knowing they would rebel had he done so. He goes on to say, the great fault of the burghers was disobedience, and this came especially to the fore when their possessions were in jeopardy. He had made up his mind that they would fight to defend Bethlehem. He rode through the town and gave notice to the inhabitants that the dorp or town would be defended and insisted that the women and children leave at once. Soon a stream of civilian refugees began to move out of the small town on their way to Friesberg, 50 kilometers to the south. Then he waited with his commando, and notes in a sinister manner. At four o'clock that afternoon, the advance guards of the enemy approached, and fifteen of their scouts made their appearance on the ridge to the north of the town. The burghers reserved their fire until these men were almost upon them. Then they let their mauzes speak, and in a moment there were nine riderless horses. The six that survived were wounded but rode away. A small skirmish then began, which lasted until sundown, an hour and a half later. However, the next day, de Wet was confronted with the full might of Hunter's force. He knew his position was exposed, and Hunter's artillery began to shell the town. One Lidart shell hit a rock near his horses, blowing twenty-five of the poor animals to bits. So he gave the order to retreat, and the Boers took off towards the protection of the mountains to the south. Shortly after de Wet retreated, Hunter's brigades arrived in Bethlehem, and the British commander took stock. Then he telegraphed Roberts that he was particularly concerned by the pass at the northeast of the Roederbergen. I am not strong enough to close no port, 
and to be in sufficient strength at essential points to prevent enemy breaking through as well as attack and force passes. The vet also had a trick up his sleeve. One of his men, by the name of Brandt, had managed to tap the British telegraph wire and received a full list of the English killed and wounded and their basic plans. Not that it was a secret. He knew Hunter was intent on driving his army into a corner and seeking a final blow. The English were now in control of Bethlehem. Yet there were major challenges which faced this force, particularly General MacDonald's unit. It was exhausted after marching hundreds of kilometres from the far-off Transvaal. The vet, too, was thankful for the brief lull that followed the fall of Bethlehem. He writes, A short breathing space was also a great benefit to us, for we had many preparations to make in view of probable events in the near future. All of us retreated behind the lofty Rodebergen. I could see that in all probability we must before long be annihilated by the immense forces of the enemy. De Wert knew this region like the back of his hand. The passes over this wild mountain range included the Kommandoneck, Witneck, Slabertsneck, Retiefsneck, Noport, and Witzeshoek. He mulled what to do. These are almost the only places where the mountains can be crossed by vehicles or horses, and there are long stretches where they are impassable, even to pedestrians. It is plain enough that nothing would have pleased the English more than for us to have remained behind the Rodebergen. He was aware that had he decided to make a stand here, it would have been the last stand they ever made. There are many military tacticians who would take issue with what de Wett now decided to do, which was to break up his force. While his officers were convinced they should dig in and fight, he forced them to agree to leaving a small watch along the Rodebergen and then to ride out in small groups in various directions. General Boerter, not to be confused with Louis Boerter, would lead the first division of men who originated from the towns of Heilbronn and Kronstadt. The commanders of these two were Commandant Steenkamp and von Art, respectively. A second large commander of 500 men from Bethlehem fell under Commandant Michal Prinzlö. Another commander from Bosov would be led by Feldkornet Badenhorst and a small number from Griqualand under Vice Commandant von Seil. De Wett would lead his own commando of Potchestrum burghers and those from the capital Bloemfontein, along with Dani Teron's specialist corps of 80 men from across the world. These, as we've heard earlier, came from the USA, Holland, Germany, Scandinavia, Russia, Turkey, Ireland, Austria, France, and other countries. From Fricksburg to Bethlehem, there were now 16,000 British troops in a semicircle of steel penning the Boers into the mountains. Except for commandos of around 1,500 men who were on their way from the Drakensberg passes on the Natal border, the entire fighting strength of the Boer Orange Free State Army was here. Tehran's staunch corps stood out. They were foreigners, but they were also the most feared in many ways, as they had travelled from around the world to fight, and they were not about to slink off, as unfortunately for De Wett, many of the Boers had done before. They were motivated by a deep-seated hatred for the British. The Boers, though, had not come to this place to be trapped, and De Wett was super wary. Against the southern backdrop of the stupendous Drakensberg, with its peaks of over 10,000 feet capped with snow, the jagged buttresses and foothills were harsh as they were beautiful. There are valleys here, and as you climb to the next rise, more valleys that fall away through the landscape that was etched in violence, as it were. 
It's a mixture of volcanic, glacier, and tectonically shaped mountains, and it's not green. Even in summer, there's a mixture of grey about these rocks. It's a lonely place, eerie and foreboding. In Bethlehem, Lieutenant General Hunter made no immediate move to block the passes as he looked up at these mountains. He stayed in the town in order to prepare and stockpile supplies as he was over a hundred kilometers from his all-important railway line while he surveyed the mountains with foreboding. Hunter had a reason to be extra cautious, even though his officers were chomping at the bit. His maps, you see, were hopelessly inaccurate. They had been prepared by the war office and showed certain passes as broad passages when in fact there was scarcely a vent in the mountains. The British commander deemed it wise to await further information and sent scouting parties out on reconnaissance missions. While he waited, de Vett was also having second thoughts, as we've heard. The next move was de Vett's, and that was to take place on the 15th of July. But we'll leave that story for next week and sit back for a moment just to contemplate this war. Recently I purchased a remarkable set of periodicals published through the earlier part of the Anglo-Boer War, which had been bound and stored in a local military bookstore. Called With the Flag to Pretoria, they were part of the Victorian-era penny magazines, full of drawings and jingoism. The authors generated a final chapter called Some Lessons from the War, and published between 1899 and 1900. Of course, the war ended in 1902, so the lessons, unfortunately, would continue. While the Boers were fighting for what they called their fatherland, the British were practicing for a European war, although no one knew it at the time. The Great War of 1914-18 was a decade and a half away, yet here were the scribes analyzing what had transpired and compared the British army to the German army. They were using a nation far away in southern Africa to practice for what was seen as an inevitable coming conflict between the Germans and the British Empire. Strange, isn't it? If you follow the history of the period at all, you'll know how inexorably the industrialized world staggered towards 1914, and these reporters sitting in South Africa were part of this echo of a coming calamity. We still live with these inevitabilities, if you consider the present. Powerful nations always practice warfare against each other using third parties. And so these English scribes wrote things like, if we suppose that Germany had been in the same position in South Africa as England, we shall see what would have been done by her and what should have been done by us. These scribes pointed out that the British did not have a general staff. It was a warning about her distinct lack of preparedness for a large-scale war. The series stops in July 1900 with these words of warning about the fact that the British aren't as prepared for war as the Germans. The writer says, had they been German, they would have been told off to collect information about the Boer republics and to prepare a plan of campaign. Every published work bearing on the Transvaal and Orange Free State would have been collected and examined. Secret agents would have ascertained the number of men available for military service in the republics, the state of the Boer artillery, the organization of the Boer commissariat. The theatre of operations would have been surveyed and mapped with scrupulous care. It is certain that with these precautions, Germany would not have dispatched an altogether inadequate force of cavalry and artillery, and have shipped these most needed arms the last of all. The underlying message was simple. Germany had a better prepared army than the British. 
Furthermore, the mapping of South Africa had been haphazard and, to be blunt, useless. And the War Office had ignored Buller's warning about mobility, his mutterings about the Boers' ability to give ground tactically, only to move into a more strategic position, their clever use of topography. The British had been hopelessly misinformed about the Boers' arms, particularly their Mauses and their artillery. At first, some of the Boer artillery units were ill-disciplined, but they quickly found their mark after a few weeks and caused chaos. Remember the attacks at Spionkop and the dreadful industrial level of casualties the British experienced there? It was the most serious struggle the British Army had faced since Waterloo, and yet the political leadership in England was unconvinced about how serious the struggle was. The writers continue with the flag to Pretoria by saying, The conduct of the preparations at home was dominated by civilian ministers who had no knowledge of war. Now war is a matter of life and death, and enemies the calibre of the Boers cannot be overcome by mere manoeuvring. This was written in July 1900, at the time that De Wett and Louis Boerter near Pretoria were about to launch a far more mobile version of the initial campaign. But this could have been written before most wars, couldn't it? Afghanistan, for example, or the Second Gulf War in the early period of the 21st century. Let's leave our scribes in South Africa at this point and stoke our fires. After all, it's midwinter and the winds which blow in from the Antarctic are howling northwards through southern Africa. Next week, we'll ride out of the Caledon Valley with Christian de Wett and find out what happens to Prinsloor as he loses his nerve. We will also rejoin the Canadians, who are finding the going a little rough as they try to hunt down Louis Boerter and his 5,000 commando on the main railway line to Delagoa Bay. Before ending, a hearty thanks to Christoffel Nell, who sent me a fascinating story published in the Onderzoeker, or The Investigator, concerning a man called Captain de Kesney. He was reportedly behind the death of Lord Kitchener, who drowned in 1916 during the First World War when his ship was torpedoed off the Scottish coast. After checking sources, I'll tell you there's a clear and direct link between this boer called Captain de Kesney and Lord Kitchener's death, as you'll hear in one of our future podcasts. So until then, please remember to rate us on iTunes or direct message me on Twitter at Des Latham if you've got any questions or comments. Goodbye.